Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for another opportunity to sit under the preaching of your holy word. And we come now with confidence that your word comes not from the thoughts and imaginations of men, but rather your prophets spoke as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit to give us the very infallible word of God, to give us a true reverence for your word that we might receive it as from your lips and humbly submit to it in our hearts and in our lives. For we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. If you'll please open your Bibles to our sermon text this morning, Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 through the end of the chapter, verse 23. You'll find this at page 984 in your pew Bibles. So Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 16 to the end of the chapter. Here now, this is the holy, infallible word of God. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle... Do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These indeed have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh." In Christ dwells all the fullness of deity bodily, and you have been filled in him through union with Christ. These precious truths of the supremacy of Christ, all the fullness of God, and the sufficiency of Christ to meet every spiritual need and grant every spiritual blessing, to fill you with all spiritual fullness. These realities are to be your joy, your anchor, and your defense against those who seek to take you captive, to lead you away from Christ, to shipwreck your faith. Last time we saw that Paul arms the Colossians to defend themselves against the attacks of these false teachers by focusing on all these blessings, all that they have received through their faith union with Christ. Through union with him, he says, you have died to your old self. You have been raised to new life. You have your sins forgiven and you are free from the dominion of evil powers. Now, after affirming all these glorious gospel truths, 
Now in this, our passage this morning, Paul is going to build on the warning that he began back in verse 8. And here he highlights three ways that the, that the false teachers are seeking to steal the Colossians away. By binding them with the chains of legalism, or with the chains of mysticism, or with the chains of asceticism. That is the harsh treatment of the body. I like the way that David Murray puts it, and so I've taken inspiration from his sermon for my outline this morning. He says, watch out for the dangers of legalists, of mystics, and of monks. At the same time, Paul responds to each of these attacks, showing how Christ has set us free from judgmental legalists. He sets us free from disqualifying mystics. He sets us free from worldly monks. In the case of the Colossians, it was one group of false teachers that embodied all three of these aspects in their teaching. And as I preach this text to you today and apply it to you this morning, I want you to consider it's more likely that you'll encounter someone who is just a legalist, or another who is perhaps just a mystic, another who has monk-like, ascetic tendencies. Whatever the case, the message is to be on your guard for these forms of counterfeit, Christless religion, and know that Christ has set you free from all these things. So first, let's consider how Christ frees us from judgmental legalists. Verse 16, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come. The first word in this verse, therefore, connects it back to what comes before, where Paul detailed all that you have received in union with Christ. In particular, notice how these people, they want to pass judgment on you. They want to condemn you according to their standards. I'll consider those standards in a moment, but first consider how it connects back to what Paul just wrote. Last time we saw that through your union with Christ, you have already received the verdict of the ultimate judge, the true judge, the only judge that really matters. And what was his verdict? God himself has forgiven you all your sins. He has judged you righteous. He has canceled your record of debt and has nailed it to the cross. But these legalists, they want to sit. They want to be your judge. They have their law books open. They want to sit in judgment over you and condemn you. And what do their law books say? They're concerned about food and drink, about festivals, new moons, and Sabbath days. Now, Paul says that these are shadows of the reality to come. And that means they were promoting a continued practice of all the Old Testament ceremonial law. They're saying if you aren't keeping all the ceremonial kosher laws concerning food and drink so that you are clean, then that means you are unclean. You cannot approach God and worship. And if you don't keep all the religious holidays and festivals, the special Sabbath days that were connected to those festivals, then you are not worshiping God rightly. In fact, you are dishonoring him with your worship. Now, when Paul warns against this and calls these things shadows, he is recognizing these were good things given by God to his people in the Old Testament, pointing forward to what was to come. 
It's also important to recognize that when Paul includes Sabbaths here, he's not saying to the Colossians, you no longer need to keep the fourth commandment. You no longer need to keep the Sabbath day. We need to remember the Sabbath is part of the moral law. It is a creation ordinance which goes back to God himself resting on the seventh day of creation. And so it always abides. But for Old Testament Israel, there were all sorts of additional ceremonial elements and the added ceremonial Sabbaths that were a part of the yearly festivals. And there was a whole system of Sabbath years. And that's what these false teachers were promoting. But Paul's main point here is this. Christ, the substance, has come. He is the one who was casting the shadow. And now that Christ has come, the shadows are no longer needed. Imagine it's a sunny evening and you're standing on a city street corner with a big building blocking your view of what's coming from around the corner. But then you see a shadow being cast from around the corner, which tells you that someone who you've been waiting for is coming. And you know it's your father because you recognize the distinctive shape of his hat in that shadow. And so you watch that shadow as it lengthens and as it approaches until at last your father emerges from around the corner. But then you take your eyes off the shadow because the one you're waiting for has arrived. But Paul looks at these false teachers who want to go back to the ceremonial law that Christ has fulfilled and done away with and says, you're still living in the shadows when you could be basking in the sun. Now it's okay to recognize that when the shadow was all you had, you kept it, you celebrated it, you delighted in it because it was all you had and it pointed forward to the coming of the Messiah and you were waiting for him, you were longing for him. And so, of course, you held on tight to the shadows. But now that the substance, the reality, Christ himself has come, you cannot go back to the shadows, you cannot let others judge you based on them. The letter to the Hebrews uses the same sort of the same sort of language of shadow versus reality. Hebrews 10:1 For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Now this verse is talking about the sacrificial system. It was another element of this ceremonial law that has passed away now that Christ has come. Now, thankfully, these legalists weren't saying you need to go back to offering sacrifices. But imagine if they were. How unthinkable now that Christ has offered the perfect and final sacrifice for our sins. But it should be just as unthinkable to bind yourself by the other elements of the ceremonial system when all that has been fulfilled by Christ. And something similar was happening in Galatia. They had false teachers who were requiring circumcision. That's another shadow. It was pointing to Christ. It was fulfilled in Christ. And we saw this just last time, back in verses 11 and 12. It's no longer needed because you have been circumcised in Christ with a circumcision made without hands, a heart circumcision. 
And you receive this through faith in Christ. It is signified and sealed for you in your baptism. And so Paul writes to the Galatians. Galatians 5.1, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. You have been set free by Christ, and to go back to the ceremonial law is like throwing that freedom away and putting yourself back under the yoke of slavery. These legalists want to judge you by rules that have passed away. But the Son has set you free, and you now worship God in spirit and in truth. The reality has come. Do not go back to the shadows. So first, Christ sets us free from judgmental legalists. Second, Christ frees us from disqualifying mystics. Verse 18 begins, let no one disqualify you. Now, Paul often uses the metaphor of a sports contest to describe the Christian life. He tells us to run the race with the promise that the Lord will grant his people a prize at the end. Sometimes he calls it the crown of life, other times the crown of righteousness. But here he says that these false teachers are like a soccer referee who would give you the red card, like a baseball umpire who would eject you from the game. And so they would rob you of your reward. Paul describes them in this section as mystics, and they are proud of it. And anyone who does not adopt their ways is disqualified. You're out of the game, out of the race. They say you're not first-order Christians unless you worship like us. He says they are insisting on, or it could be translated, they are delighting in the following things. The first is asceticism. It's a denial of the flesh, which usually includes fasting from food and water, long vigils. It can even sometimes include a bodily mutilation. The idea is that by denying the body, the spirit is intensified or uplifted. And while there is a place for fasting in Christian spirituality, this is really more of a pagan idea than a biblical one. This is also likely connected to the elements that follow, because in the ancient world, it was common to undertake severe forms of self-deprivation in order to prepare oneself for or even to induce mental states wherein you could receive ecstatic visions. Second, Paul says they delight in the worship of angels. Now, it's possible they were simply bowing down and worshiping angels, just straight-up worship of angels, but that's not necessarily the case here. It was probably something more subtle, but which Paul correctly identifies as idolatry and therefore a form of angel worship. It may be that they were seeking heavenly visions of angels, and in the process, they began to idolize the angels themselves. You see, in the Bible, often when angels appear, people were tempted to bow down and worship them because the angels were truly glorious. It's also possible that they had been adopting a mixture of Jewish mysticism and pagan superstition, believing that you needed to invoke angels to protect yourself from evil spirits. And that may be why Paul had emphasized that Christ has triumphed over all the evil rulers and authorities on the cross. You don't need angels to protect you when you share in Christ's triumph. Either way, Paul labels it idolatry, a worship of the angels, a false mysticism. 
Third, Paul says they are going on in detail about visions. They are preoccupied with what they have seen, what they have experienced, the visions of their own heads. There's no evidence that these visions are revelations from God. And these mystical experiences have had a serious negative result. It has caused the mystic to become puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. And this shows his true colors. Mysticism may seem super spiritual, but at at its heart is actually a form of self-centered sensuality. You can can compare this to Paul who had a true heavenly vision, which he mentions briefly in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, but he he tells us hardly anything about it except that it happened and that to go along with it, the Lord gave him a thorn in the flesh to humble him to go along with the greatness of this vision. And he certainly does not tell others to seek the same thing. He certainly does not base all his teaching on it. He does not make it central to his spiritual life. The biggest problem of all this is what comes in verse 19. They are not holding fast to the head. In other words, these mystics may impress you with their talk of angels and visions. They may seem spiritual, but they've departed from Christ. The body needs the head, and that's what they're lacking. They say you need to follow our ways to go deeper, to have the true worship experience. Here, Paul is saying, this is what's truly essential. Hold fast to Christ, the head. Let's read again verse 19. And not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. Now Paul doesn't actually identify who exactly the head is in verse 19, but it's clear that this is referring to Christ. Back in chapter 1, Paul wrote of Christ as the head, saying, and he is the head of the body the church. This head of the body metaphor is often used in the Bible to indicate a relationship of authority. And of course, Christ is the king who rules over his church. He has all authority, and that is implied here. But you can see that's not what Paul is primarily emphasizing as he describes Christ's relationship to his body in this verse. Rather, what is he saying? He describes him here as the source of provision for the body, the source which causes the body to grow. Now, of course, the warning, the implied warning is equally true. If you do not hold fast, if you do not abide in him, you will not grow, but you will rather wither away and die. In many ways, it's very similar to Jesus's illustration of the vine and the branches. I am the vine, and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. John 15, 5 through 6. There's a close parallel passage to this one found in Ephesians 4, 15 and 16. Where Paul writes, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way 
into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now in this parallel passage, it's interesting, there's a little bit more emphasis on how each member of the body does its part. We grow as we each work, as we each serve one another. And yet, even in the parallel, it remains absolutely clear that behind it all is Christ. He is the root and the source. He is the one who builds up his church. And apart from him, there is no growth. And so the message is, you must hold fast to Christ the head. And don't let anyone disqualify you saying, you need something outside of him. You need some special mystical experience that Christ himself hasn't required or provided. There will always be those who say there's something new out there. Some shiny new spiritual experience or technique. Some groundbreaking new way to draw near to God like never before. Watch out for the charlatans who say, you're missing out. Simply hold fast to Christ because you have everything in him and he frees us from disqualifying mystics. Third, Christ frees us from worldly monks. Reading again, beginning in verse 20. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you are still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. In these verses, Paul is warning us about the danger of a certain kind of worldliness. But it's not what you probably think of when you hear that term, worldly. You probably think of a certain sort of short-term, pleasure-seeking worldliness. Partying, drinking, drugs, gambling. That's one sort of worldliness. But consider this, you can also have man-made, Christless religion that is completely of this world, according to the elementary principles of this world. And therefore, that is a form of religious worldliness. And that is exactly what Paul warns about in these verses. A religious worldliness expressed through a system of man-made rules and regulations. We see the characteristics of this as he describes it in these verses. It is oppressive, it is humanistic, human-focused, it is deceptive, and it is ultimately powerless. First, it's oppressive. You must submit to its regulations, and that means rule after rule after rule. As Paul lays it out here, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules come to control your life, and yet they are not focused on the things of ultimate value, like loving God and loving neighbor, but trivial things. He says they are things that perish with the use. And so you're jumping through hoops with no end in sight. This is why I say it's like, these are like monks who live a life regulated by books full of rules. Now we don't know exactly what foods and drinks they were forbidding in Colossae, or if they were also forbidding marriage, as was mentioned in our reading from 1 Timothy 4. 
We already read what Paul's response to these sorts of rules was. He says, for everything created by God is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. But those are the things that are so common. And we see it among man-made religion. It's so common for for monastic orders to say, don't get married, don't eat this food, don't drink this drink. But God says, I've made it all good. Second worldly religion is humanistic. It is self-made religion, not from God, but invented by the mind of man. These are merely human precepts and teachings. And Paul is alluding here to Jesus' critique of the Pharisees in which he actually goes back, he's quoting from Isaiah. And so you see that this is a long-standing problem, even among those who had the scriptures, whom God was sending prophets to, and yet they were still making up man-made rules and religions. And Jesus said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, But their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Mark 7, 6-7. Of course, if your religion is man-made, that means it cannot bring you to God. It cannot make you right with God. Third, worldly religion is deceptive. As Paul writes in verse 23, these have indeed an appearance of, of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. It is an appearance of wisdom, but there's no true wisdom here. They draw you in with appearances, but no substance. The asceticism and harsh treatment of the body, it may seem from the outside like it's very religious, it's very spiritual. It will supposedly suppress the flesh and maximize the spirit. It will supposedly bring you out of this world and closer to God. But why is this wisdom only in appearance? Because, fourth, the worldly religion is ultimately powerless. But these, these, they, these rules are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. At the end of the day, Paul says, this doesn't work. You can pile up all the rules in the world and it will not restrain you from sin. But what exactly does Paul mean here? What does this look like? Why doesn't it work? I used to think that Paul was saying here that when you make all these rules and you lock yourself down with such harsh strictness, it's sure to backfire on you. It's like a rubber band pulled taut and you are sure to snap back and fall into indulgence in one area or another. And in many instances, that is true. You certainly can find plenty of examples of that, where people look like they're being super rigid and strict on the outside, but secretly, when others aren't looking, they're indulging in other ways. Or they're able to keep the rules for a time until they fall in some spectacular way. In many instances, that is what's going on. But there are other cases where people do successfully keep all the rules. There are people out there who are good rule keepers, who are successful monks. So I don't think that's ultimately what Paul is saying here. The point is, 
that the better you get at keeping man-made rules, the more you are actually indulging the flesh. Why? Because you're successfully keeping your own system of worldly religion that is not given by God. And therefore, what's going on? You're feeding your pride. And that, too, is part of the flesh. And so even though you lock down yourself with this harsh treatment of the body and you keep all the rules, what's the point? What are you accomplishing? At the end of the day, man-made rules cannot change the heart. They cannot draw you closer to God. Only Christ can do that through the power of the Holy Spirit at work in you. And so this worldly religion and rules, it is extremely dangerous. It appears wise, but it is oppressive. It is humanistic. It is deceptive. And it is ultimately powerless. And yet we, we see the solution right here. That you have died to this world in Christ. And Paul doesn't quite say it flat out. He says, if, if with Christ you died to the elementary principles of the world, why? As if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? He says, if, but that's a loaded if. And clearly implied is that surely you have died with Christ. We already saw that last time. You have been circumcised with Christ. And therefore, you have died. You have been buried. You have been raised with him. You have put off your old nature. And you have received a new heart. You have died to this world with its rules and its regulations. And Paul will then say it flat out in the next chapter, just a few verses ahead. Chapter 3, verse 3. For you have died. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. And so Paul says, don't submit to the rules and regulations of this world. You are free from them. Christ has set you free. Of course, that does not mean you're free to do anything you want. It means you belong to the world to come. You are a citizen of heaven, and Christ is your Lord. And therefore, you obey his rules and his commandments. But watch out for religious-sounding rules that do not come from Christ. As Paul says, as he writes in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. And so live in the newness of life and the freedom that you have in Christ. We've seen this morning that Christ sets us free from judgmental legalists, from disqualifying mystics, from worldly monks. There will always be those who want to tell you that Christ is not enough. You need something more. You need something extra. You need something different. You need to go back to the Old Testament in order to worship God rightly. You need to have an extraordinary experience or else you don't really know God right or else you haven't truly worshipped him. You need to follow these extra rules to be more strict, more disciplined in order to draw near to God right. But in all these things, what are they ultimately saying? They're saying Christ is not enough. He is not sufficient. Or they are saying his word is not enough. That simply obeying what he has commanded you in the Bible 
is not enough. And you need something more. Something invented by the mind of man. I want to tell you, do not be deceived. Before he discovered the simple gospel, Martin Luther devoted himself to the worldly religion that was taught within the monasteries of the Catholic Church of his day. And so he wrote, I was a good monk. I kept the rules of my order so strictly that I may say that if ever a monk got to heaven by monkery, it was I. But he discovered it was ultimately fruitless. It was powerless. It was empty. It led nowhere. All his good works, so to say, his fasts, his unending vigils, to the point that he nearly killed himself. They were not able to soothe his guilty conscience. They were not able to take away his sinful impulses. They could not make him right with God. But then Luther discovered the good news, the pure gospel, that God justifies sinners through faith alone in Jesus Christ. Not through our works, but as a free gift, something we simply receive. And oh, how that good news transformed not only Luther's life, but it was the spark that lit the fire of the Reformation. And it went on to free millions of people from the centuries of of man-made traditions that had accumulated in the Roman Catholic Church of that day, which had obscured that pure and simple gospel. And salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And yet today we must continue to hold fast to our head, to Jesus Christ, hold on to the true faith. Watch out for all the counterfeits. Christ has set you free. And you have all your fullness, all your joy, every spiritual blessing in him and him alone. So hold on to Christ. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you have poured out upon us grace upon grace in your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that you have granted us the new birth by your Holy Spirit. You have given us the gift of faith to trust in him. And so you have forgiven us all our sins through Jesus Christ, our Savior. And so united to him, we have died to our old selves. We have been raised to walk in newness of life. Lord, help us not to be deceived by any who would seek to lead us astray with the heavy yoke of legalism or mysticism or asceticism. Help us to hold fast to Christ our head, knowing that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Help us to walk daily in Christ, growing and being built up as we abide in him. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.